the following message entitled, The Law of Faith, Part 8 of the series, A Righteousness of God, was given by Bob Mundorf on March 30, 2014, at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Morning, everybody. My name's Bob, if I haven't met you yet, and uh, one of the pastors here. Looking forward to getting into God's Word this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at uh, this passage of Scripture this morning. Father, thank You, Lord, for this time and the ability we have, the opportunity we have to get together and hear Your Word. Uh, Lord, Your Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and we want to hear it today, Lord. We want Your Word to penetrate our hearts this morning, Lord, and we pray that, that You would do that. We can do nothing apart from You, Jesus. Uh, we all declare our dependence on You this morning to help us with Your Word. Thank You, Lord. We know that You'll answer that prayer. Help me as I speak, Lord. Help me to speak clearly and teach Your truth, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, uh, Mark Twain once said that the difference between the right word and all, the almost right word, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. And that's definitely true for this article that I read this week. I found this article on the National Security Government website. It's called One Word two lessons. And this article talks about how possibly the deadliest error of our time came down to the meaning of one word. In 1945, in July of 1945, the Allied leaders submitted an ultimatum to Japan to surrender. This is during World War II. Allied leaders said, surrender or suffer prompt and utter destruction. And when Japanese Premier uh, Kantaro Suzuki was asked by the Japanese press what his intentions were immediately after that ultimatum was given, he used a word, a word that meant different things to different people, a word that's meaning had sort of changed and morphed over time. But to Suzuki Kantaro, this word makusatsu meant that he was going to delay comment for the time being. He just didn't want to give a swift answer. So he said makusatsu. But apparently makusatsu is a word that meant different things to different people and the, the Allied forces heard this. It angered them because they understood him the wrong way according to this article. The response was devastating. The atomic bomb was dropped. Hiroshima was leveled and 70,000 people were dead, according to a word. In the Bible, God gives us the terms for our justification. We've been talking about how we're justified by God, how we're declared righteous by God so that we don't have to pay for our sins. The Bible uses a word as the means 
of how we get that justification. Now, understanding this word could have far more devastating effects than understanding the word makasatsu, as devastating as Hiroshima was. That's the word faith. It's used over a hundred times in the New Testament alone as the terms that God wants us to come to Him through to have our justification. That's what our passage is about today. How we come to God to be justified. This is a word that we can't afford to get wrong. We can't afford to misunderstand what God means when He says that we're saved by faith. We can't afford to let the meaning of this word change. Because if we get it wrong, it could mean eternal damnation. So, what is faith? That's what this is about today. Is faith simply believing? Is it counting something as true? Just being persuaded about something that this is true? Is it mental assent? Or is it more than that? Does faith include more? Does it include something to do with our performance? Something to do with our works? Is it too easy to just say faith is just simply believing? What does faith mean? What does the the word belief mean? There's one word in the Greek, pistuo, it's translated faith or belief. What do those words mean? We need to be clear on that. And this passage that we're going to look at now makes it explicitly clear what it is and what it isn't. So let's look at Romans 3, 27 through Romans 4, 8 together. Paul starts out by asking the question, then what becomes of our boasting? And he's asking that question because, as Joe preached last week, we learned that God justifies us, makes us legally righteous, just as if we've never sinned through the means of faith. And he says, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So we see in this passage of Scripture eight times that Paul uses the word faith or belief. Same Greek word, faith, belief. He uses it eight different times in these ten verses. And he uses it as the means of our justification before God. 
He is telling us God's terms for us to come to Him and be justified. In other words, how we get saved. Paul's telling us how to get saved, and he's saying that it's by faith apart from works. And he's making it explicitly clear here that we must hold to faith apart from works. In other words, we must never let works get smuggled in to this doctrine of faith alone. Now, what Paul knows, and what God knows, which is why he says this over and over again in Scripture, is that every human being on the planet Earth is inherently addicted to faith or to justification by doing. We want to justify ourselves. We want to have something to do with it. We want to play a part in it. And that's why Paul is hammering this point over and over and over again. I mean, if you look at just the world, you see this. If you look at every other religion other than Christianity, it's all works-based. It's all, I do something and then I'm justified. If I do enough, then, then I'm justified. Christianity is different. Christianity is grace. Christianity is nothing that we do, but everything that Jesus Christ did. That's the way we are justified before God. But He knows that just this addiction to wanting to justify ourselves and have something to do with it is our default mode. It's, what we, it's just what we think. It's the way we're wired. And so, He's constantly redirecting us back to this doctrine of faith alone. And over the years, the church, the Christian church, has had to reform several times back to this doctrine of faith alone because we just want to play a part in it. We're a bunch of do-it-yourselfers. We want to have something to do with it. And so that's what this passage is talking about. Verse 28 nails it down. Verse 28, I think, is the theme of this whole thing. For we hold, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We've got to hold to it, guys, because it's a slippery doctrine. The moment we let go of this truth that we are justified by faith alone, the moment we let go of it because we want to have something to do with it, we lose it. You've got to hold to it. We've got to keep coming back to this. This is true whether we like it or not. And it doesn't seem right in our minds. It just seems too easy. That's what we're going to talk about today. We can't smuggle one thing into this doctrine. Because if you say faith plus this, then it's no longer faith alone. We're saved, we're justified by believing. That's what faith is. So, this passage is super rich, and I would love to talk about it for just a whole month. But what we're going to do instead is I'm going to take three big chunks of application out of it. And we're going to look at these together. I want to apply this in three ways to us. And uh, the first one comes, well, the three ways, I think we have them up here. Yeah, don't break the law of faith. This comes from chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. The second thing is just believe God. We're going to see this in 4, 1 through 3. And the third point is stop looking at performance. And we're going to see this in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Let's look at don't break the law of faith. Don't break the law of faith. Listen to 
verses 27 and 28. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. See, God has designed His terms for our justification in a way that shut out boasting. There's no room for boasting. Boasting is a word that means that you attribute glory to something or weight to something because it played a part in it. You don't have any part in your justification. So there's no room for boasting. That's why He made it by faith alone. That's what it means when it says, no, but by the law of faith. By the principle. He's using law in the sense of a principle here. By the principle of faith. You have no, we have no reason, no right to boast because we didn't do anything to save ourselves. We did nothing. It's all because of Jesus and His finished work. It's all because of what He did and none of, because, none of what we do. Now, what we can do and, and what I've done is in the past fall into this this snare, this trap of, of, of thinking that I have something to do with my salvation. That, that it's, it's faith, but I, I'm really am getting my assurance based on what my life looks like. And uh, I want to point out, well, let me just give you an example of how that happened. I, I, when I was about seven or eight years old, I can remember vividly laying in my bed, and uh, I can remember just being scared to death that I was going to go to hell. And I asked my mom, uh, how can I know that I'm not going to go to hell? <clears throat> and I remember she had this, this little Bible, and she read to me some verses. I don't even remember what they were, but she explained in those verses the Gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ was God, and that He came, became a man, and, and died for our sins, and rose again, and she told me, she said, if you believe this, then you won't go to hell. And so, I believed it. Looking back, I believed that. And I remember if you fast forward then to my teenage years, um, I, uh, I just started going off track in a bad way. <clears throat> I, would, I would say, even looking back, I would have said then that I still believed that gospel. But... Over time, in my teenage years, I began be, becoming more and more attracted to the world. And some of you might know what I'm talking about. I mean, there's a lot, there are a lot of temptations in this world, especially for teens. And I, <clears throat> I became more and more attracted to being popular and uh, just friends who weren't living according to the gospel and I started indulging in drinking and immoral relationships. And uh, really, those kind of things became idols to me. Where for a long stretch of my life, probably five years, I was, I was just into drinking parties. And I was into getting drunk. And I was into immoral relationships. And I was kind of like Jekyll and Hyde. Like a lot of people didn't know this about me. But when, when, the, when, it, you know, when the night came or when I was spending a weekend with my friends, I would indulge in this stuff. And so,
um, probably in my early 20s, uh, God began to really convict me about these things. I was convicted when I was doing them, but he began to really convict me, and I started to change. I stopped going to drinking parties. I stopped drinking altogether in my early 20s. I stopped having immoral relationships. And so I was having a little bit of success in my Christian walk. And that's a good thing. You know, your, your life might need cleaned up, and it's a good thing to clean it up. But what happened to me wasn't just good. It became ugly. Because what I began to do was I began to, first of all, start to doubt that I was even really a Christian in the past. I began to doubt it, and I began to think, well, I wasn't a Christian then. Um, but now I'm a Christian. And what I was doing was I was basing that on my performance, what I was doing. And what came along with that was that I began to, I don't even know if I was conscious of this at the time, but I know it happened. I began to evaluate other people based on their performance. And what happened was, especially the sins that I was caught up in for a long period of time, when I would see people in those sins, even if they said they believed in Jesus and were a Christian, I would write that off, dismiss it completely. I, that, those people to me, because I beat that, those people were disgusting to me. They were hypocrites in my mind. I thought, you're a hypocrite. You're, you're. What I was doing was I was becoming more and more like the guy in Jesus' parable. There's a parable that Jesus told in uh, Luke chapter 18. He said, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 13, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. <clears throat> now, I want you to notice something. This Pharisee wasn't taking credit for his performance. He was, he was thanking God for the fact that he wasn't like this disgusting sinner. Oh, he attributed that to God. Just like him, when I beat these certain sins, I was thanking God. I knew that I couldn't do that on my own. I was thanking God just like this Pharisee. God, thank you. Thank you for this. I knew that God worked in me to change, but that wasn't the issue just as that's not the issue here in Jesus' parable with this Pharisee. The issue is just like this Pharisee, just like I was doing, that I was basing my justification on my performance, on what I was doing, just as he is basing his justification on instead of what Jesus did. And as a result of that, I began to base other people's justification on their performance as well, and I became judgmental, just like this Pharisee. We don't want to get in to this looking at our actions to be justified. We must separate works from faith. 
Verse 29 of Romans chapter 3 says this, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So this law or this principle of faith applies to every person on the planet. That's what he's saying here. There's no discrimination. Nobody gets special treatment. Everybody, Jews, Gentiles, rule keepers, rule breakers, everybody comes to God and gets justified by faith in Jesus Christ. By believing God's testimony about His Son, believing the Gospel. Verse 31, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So, Paul's asking here, okay, if this is true, if we're saved by faith, it doesn't have anything to do with our works. What do we do with the law? Do we just throw it out? Do we just toss it out? And he says, no way, by no means. Why? Well, there are several reasons and several answers to this question. Some of them we're going to see really clearly as we go through the book of Romans. But we already saw one a couple weeks ago when Mark preached on Romans 3, 19 and 20 where Paul told us that the law serves to show us our sin. To show us that we can't keep it so that we're then pointed to Christ, the only one who did keep the law. And so that law is there to show us and it's also to show anyone who doesn't believe in Him on Judgment Day the grounds for their condemnation. Because they didn't come to Jesus through faith. They thought they could do it another way and they'll be judged according to that law. That's what we saw in chapter 2. If you want to go that route, you've got to keep it perfectly all your life. Never sin. Always do right. So the law is good. We don't throw it out. But as, as he's already proven, nobody can come to God that way. So we come this other way, by faith, apart from works. And this doctrine, it just cuts the legs right out from under the proud, the self-righteous Pharisee that thinks that they have something to do with this justification, that wants to so badly have something to do with it. So what is faith? What is the means of this justification? He's going to explain it a little more clearly in this second point, just believe God. This comes from uh, verses 1 through 3. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what about Father Abraham? He was a good guy, Paul. He, he did a lot of great things. He's a really great guy for the Lord. Wasn't he justified by works? Didn't James say that Abraham was justified by works? Paul says, sorry, Jewish brother, but even Father Abraham was justified apart from works by faith alone. Now listen, Paul would certainly acknowledge that Abraham was a pretty good guy. He was a righteous dude. He, he did a lot of good things. And I think this is what James 
is talking about. This may be what some of you are thinking. I'm sure it is. What about what James says? Now, James said Abraham was justified by works. He said he proved himself by those works. What about this? I think this is going to really help us. As we've seen in chapter 2, God requires perfection. But there are really two kinds of righteousness explained in the Scriptures. Now, track with me here because I think this is going to help us understand a place where a lot of us get confused. There are two kinds of righteousness. On one hand, there's positional righteousness. Positional righteousness. And this is the kind of righteousness that we're talking about here in the book of Romans. Positional righteousness is a legal declaration. It's a courtroom term. God declares us legal, just as if we've never sinned, just as if we've always done everything right. That's positional righteousness. This kind of righteousness depends fully on God, on the work of Christ, not at all on what we do. Nothing. Zero. We can't smuggle our works into this kind of righteousness. That's the point of this passage. Okay? This positional righteousness, this is a great truth, it's permanent. It's everlasting. It never ends. Once it's acquired by faith, it does not end. Why? Because it all depends on what Jesus did, and it doesn't depend at all on our performance. Positional righteousness, you can't lose it because it depends on what Jesus did. If, you, if it depended at all on us, we'd lose it all the time because what does God require? Perfection. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe the Gospel, you have this positional righteousness. It can't be lost. It can't be improved upon. Every one of us here who believes in Jesus Christ, believes the Gospel, has this 100%. Fully. There is no 99% when it comes to this kind of justification, this kind of righteousness. In God's eyes, positionally, we are perfect because we're clothed with Christ. And that's who He sees when He looks at us. On the other hand, there's another kind of righteousness in the Word of God. And a lot of people describe this kind of righteousness as actual or experiential righteousness, or practical righteousness. The kind of righteousness that we sometimes mean when we talk about our sanctification. So you're justified when you believe, and then there's this lifelong process of growing in righteousness, growing in sanctification. And so there's this righteousness that we are called to, this experiential positional righteousness. We're called to it. We have hope for it. We have the Holy Spirit. We can do this. But you know as well as I do that we don't do this perfectly because it depends in part on us. So this, this actual or experiential righteousness, it can decrease, it can increase. Uh, there are varying degrees of it here in this room right now. You know, there are people here who are more righteous than me There are people here who are less righteous than me. It depends on us. Here's the thing, guys. Christians get into all kinds of trouble and confusion whenever these two kinds of righteousness aren't separated. 
when we don't understand them individually and we bring them together and mix them, there's all kinds of confusion about who's saved, who's not saved, what's going on, are you a Christian, are you not a Christian, am I a Christian? I'm not a Christian today. I'm doubting my salvation. The problem is we don't mix them. They're like oil and water. They're both good, both really good, but they don't mix. The normal accusation is if somebody's talking about this kind of righteousness and say we have nothing to do with it, for people to say, well, what do you mean? And you can just live however you want. But that's, that's a good question because that's what the Bible answers, and we're going to see that, the answer to that question a little bit later. Paul says, what, should we just go on and sin because we're under grace? Understand these two kinds of righteousness. I think that James is talking about this kind of righteousness. A righteousness before men that we can see, that we can measure, that has varying degrees. I think James is talking about that when he says Abraham was justified by his works. Verse 3. Here's what we've got to do. Verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? That is the question that we need to ask. That's the question that we always need to ask. If we don't ask that question, then we're going we're gonna to get loose with God's words. We're going to start creating our own terms for justification. We're going we're gonna to get confused. The Scripture is our north star. We've got to go back to it. We've got to recalibrate every day. We've got to ask the question, what does the Scripture say? I have a friend, a good friend of mine named Matt Morrow, who I used to work with when I was a probation officer years ago. And Matt and I would go on these long trips together uh, to transport prisoners. And it was great because it gave us an opportunity to talk about the Lord and His Word. Wonderful time of fellowship. But Matt always asked me that question. He, he did it in this way. He said, I'd say something, he'd be like, Where's that, where is that at in the Bible? And he wasn't being mean, he, was just, he wanted to know. He was being kind and he was, he was asking this question. Where, where is that in the Bible? What's the, what does the Bible say about that? So I would make these comments that are popular in Christian popular culture, these cliches. And, um, and I know we mean well when we say these things a lot of times. Like one time I said to Matt, I was, I was all proud of myself. I said, Matt, I, uh, I led this guy. This guy got saved today. I, I led him to say the sinner's prayer. And I meant, I meant well then. But Matt said, oh, the sinner's prayer. Where is that in the Bible as a means of getting saved? And I'm not saying that if you've prayed the sinner's prayer, that you're not a Christian. Because I know that when you prayed that prayer, hopefully you did believe the Gospel. But what does the Scripture say? It's not there. I looked. I was like, "Uh, I don't know, Matt. It's not there. We can begin to get away from what the Scripture says when we get loose with God's Word. We can begin to lose God's words when we get loose with God's words. I, um, you know, along the same lines, I, I saw there's a new book out called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Now, I know, and I have I've told kids, I've said this a number of times, that if you ask Jesus into your heart, you'll be a Christian. But that isn't in the Bible. That isn't in the Bible. I think that's, I didn't read this book, I think that's what he's probably talking about. Listen, how 
serious and careful should we be whenever we tell someone God's terms for being saved. We can't get loose with those. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. Abraham didn't pray the sinner's prayer. Abraham didn't ask Jesus into his heart. Abraham believed God over a hundred times in the New Testament. That shows us God's terms for getting saved, for getting justified. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So if God gave us these terms, we need to know them. We need to be careful. And we need to say them instead of saying other things. Look at verse... um, I'm sorry, we just looked at it. Verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. When he believed God, he got this, this positional righteousness. We're going to see next week that it didn't come after he started doing good things. It didn't come after God told him you have to get circumcised to Abraham. Years later he got circumcised. The Scripture next week is going to tell us It didn't come as a result of that. It came when he believed God, and you can't lose it. Now, I know what probably many of you are thinking, because I think it's natural to think this. That seems too easy. What's going on? That's that's foolish. That's just too easy. Maybe, from a human perspective, a do-it-yourselfer perspective. But see, that's intentional. That's the way God made it intentionally. That's the point. When, when Abraham believed God, it's referring back to the book of Genesis. When God made a promise to Abraham that he would have a child and that through his offspring, God would number them as, he would have descendants as many as the stars in the sky. This was a statement of fact, a promise that God gave to Abraham. When God gives you a statement of fact, you only have two options. You can believe it, or you can not believe it. God didn't tell him to do anything. God just told him what God was going to do for him. And Abraham believed it. Now that was ridiculous, because Abraham was like 90 or 100 years old. His wife was old. She was barren, could never have a child. Yet, he believed God. In the same way, in the same way, God gave us a statement of fact in the Gospel. The Gospel is this, that Jesus Christ is God, the eternal God, who became a man, who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins, and who on the third day rose from the dead. That's it. That's the Gospel. The Gospel doesn't include your response to that. Your response is simply your response. God said that if you believe that, you will be saved. That's what He says in His Word. It's not my opinion. That's just what the Word of God says. Now, this seems ridiculous from man's perspective. This seems too easy. But faith doesn't come by doing. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ, which is the Gospel. That's how we're saved. We're saved by faith in what God did. Abraham believed God's promise and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
And if we believe God's promise in the gospel, the truth about His Son, the person and work of Jesus Christ, then it will be accounted to us for righteousness as well. So what does it mean to believe? It just means to count something as true. You can ask you know, any Greek scholar what the word pistuo means. That's all it means. To just count something as true. To be persuaded that something is true. Now, this doesn't mean, here's a little side note. This doesn't mean that everyone who says they believe really believes. There is such a thing as a false profession of faith. I mean, this might happen with our kids a lot of times just because I mean, we're their authority and we tell them this truth and they might say that they believe because they want, us to, they want to get us off their back, they want to please us. They might, here's another way, they might not understand exactly what the gospel is. I know people who say they believe the gospel. I, I know one person who says he said he believed the gospel, but after pressing him, he didn't believe Jesus was God. He believed Jesus died on the cross for sins. He believed Jesus rose from the dead, but he believed Jesus was just a man. People might say they believe. It doesn't mean they believe. But this is true. If they believe the gospel, then it's accounted to them as righteousness. That's true. So, we need to recognize that the simplicity of this is intentional. God made it this way so that it would be foolishness to the proud, to the self-righteous. It tells us that in 1 Corinthians. This is foolishness to proud and self-righteous people. But it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, he says, by this you can know that you have eternal life. By what? By believing the testimony of God. That's what he says. If you believe the testimony of God about His Son, you know that you have eternal life. I know it seems simple. I know it's hard to believe, but that's what the Bible says. So we've got to know that our assurance comes from faith alone in Christ alone and not at all from us. And that's what Paul's going to get to in verses 4 and 5. This is the third point. Stop looking at performance. Now get ready for Paul to pound one last nail into the coffin of works-based faith. He's going to pound a nail into it and put it to death. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as His due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. Let me read it again. To the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. To that one, His faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. See, what he's saying here, if you believe that your performance plays a part in your justification, here's what you're saying. Oh God, look at my life. Look at all I'm doing. Okay, pay up God. You owe me. You owe me something. Pay up. That's what he's saying in verse 4. That's blasphemy. God doesn't save us that way. We can't backload works 
into our justification. Listen, that's exactly what the people did in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 22. When they were standing before the Lord and they said, they said, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these mighty works in Your name? See, what they were doing was they were poisoning the pot of justification by faith alone by wanting God to credit them because they did things for Him. They were basing their assurance on their life instead of on faith alone in Jesus Christ alone and what He did. They, said, they should have said, Lord, didn't You die for our sins? That's the question. Not, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in Your name? I mean, some people say these people are like other religions, like Buddhists or Hindus. And no, they're talking to Jesus and they're, they're claiming that they did things in His name, in the name of Christ. These people thought they were Christians. But they were basing their salvation on what they did and not on what He did. They added something. We can't do that. We've, we must hold that justification comes from faith apart from works. The moment we add anything to it, we pollute it. I know this is hard. This is hard to understand for a lot of people. But, and really, this is the way life is, isn't it? We go to work. We do a good job at work. We get a paycheck. Listen, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with getting a paycheck for doing good work. You go to school. You study hard. You get a good grade if you worked hard enough. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good principle. A great principle. But it's not the way God saves us. It is not the way God saves us. What, the way God saves us, if you want to stick with that analogy, God gives us an A at the beginning of the class. The moment we believe in Him. Not because of anything we did, but because of everything Jesus Christ did. Jesus earned the A because God's standard is perfection. You've got to get them all right. Or you don't get an A. None of us can do that. Jesus got the A. The moment you believe in Him, that A is credited to your account. You're righteous. Hey, then, then we can make it our aim to please Him. We can make it our aim to live for Him. And we should. We should follow His commands in Scripture. We should stop sinning. But don't mix the two. Don't ever mix the two. Justification comes from faith alone in Jesus Christ. And we can never prove our justification to Him because it's all about what Jesus did. And I know this, this doctrine is, it can be hard to accept because it can actually be harder to accept than performance-based salvation. It can be more of a stumbling block to some people than performance-based salvation. Because you have nothing to do with it. That can be hard for people. It, be, it requires us to believe in something that we can't see. See, when we start looking at our lives and ourselves to base our justification on, we can see that. We can measure that. We know how we're doing. We get into this miserable good day, bad day mentality. And we start doubting our salvation. Or we start feeling good about it. That's, that's looking at something that you can see. The Bible says that faith 
is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence, or I mean the conviction, or the belief of things not seen. We can't see the Gospel. We can only hear it and believe it. And if we have faith in that, not the things we can see, then God will count this justification to us. So, if we want to have true assurance, we've got to take our eyes off of ourselves and our life and put them on the one that we can't see except through the lens of faith, Jesus Christ. Because it's in Him alone that we have this positional righteousness. Verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Whose faith is counted as righteousness? The one who's looking at his performance to vindicate himself? The one who's evaluating his life and saying, Lord, didn't I do this? No. On the contrary, the one who's not looking at his performance. His faith is counted as righteousness. He's simply believing in Jesus Christ. See, these are God's terms. Not ours. God's terms for how we're justified. This is God's means of salvation. In verses 6-8, through eight, Paul calls a murderer and an adulterer to the stand for the closing testimony. At least ours today. King David, a man who's guilty of murder, a man who's guilty of adultery, a man who's guilty of a number of other sins, a man who could not look at his performance and say, I'm saved but only had to believe and look at Jesus Christ, look ahead to Him. See, this is what he says, verse 6, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Here's what he said, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David knew he was a sinner. David knew he needed forgiveness. He knew he didn't measure up. Now, I don't know where all of us are individually on the scale of our performance, our experiential, our practical righteousness. But when we start looking at that instead of looking to Christ, we don't have salvation. We have something called probation. Am I meeting the conditions? Am I bearing enough fruit? Am I doing enough? Oh, I'm not. I must not be a Christian. Or, oh, I am. I'm better than everyone else. Don't get into that mess. Take your good works. Take your bad works. Throw them all at the cross because Jesus died for all of them. We must look to Him for assurance. Do you know what assurance means? Assurance means certainty. If you're looking at your life, you can never be certain that you're going to heaven. Never. The only way to be certain, the only way to have assurance is to look to Jesus Christ. You don't want to have that miserable life of looking at yourself and basing your assurance on that. But fortunately, I should say graciously, when we look to Jesus Christ through the eyes of faith and faith alone, we don't have to find our assurance in our performance anymore. We don't have to find our assurance in our feelings. I don't feel saved. I do feel saved. We find our assurance in Christ and Him alone. When I was a little boy, and uh, 
My mom explained to me the gospel. I believed that message that night. And I have not been perfect by any means since then. But you know what? My Savior has. He's been perfect. He's the one that I have to look to. And when we look to Him and Him alone for our assurance, then we can be happy. We can be sure. That's it. Don't look to yourself. Look to Jesus. Let's, uh, let's stand and pray and have the band come up. And uh, if we could sing in Christ alone to close. Father, it is only in Your Son, Jesus Christ, that we have any right to come before You. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Help us not to be like the Pharisee that looked to his life. Help us not to be like those that stand before You on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do these things? Help us to be like Abraham who believed Your promise, who believed that You sent Your Son, Jesus, to die for our sins and rise from the dead and that that alone saves us. Father, help us never to backload works into the way that we come to You, the way that we're justified. By all means, help us to live godly lives and stop sinning and start living in holiness, but only as a response to what You've done for us. It's all because of Christ. Help us all to know that. In Jesus' name, Amen.